Adam Mills. Hey. Hello. <laughs> you just came back from Montreal. I did. I got back on uh, Monday morning. How was it? Great. Oh, yeah. Amazing. Um, all right. Montreal highlights. <laughs> I have I have Montreal moments because it, it's all about the industry in Montreal. It's not like Edinburgh where you go out there and do your show and your show is the focus. In Montreal, half the audience are from the industry. You go there to be discovered. And back in the day, like 10, 15, 20 years ago, people would sign three quarter of a million dollar development deals like just holding deals off the back of a seven minute spot tim allen who was on home improvement seinfeld ray romano a legendary for signing these massive deals up in montreal they don't happen anymore but you still go up there to be courted by that kind of malarkey so my montreal moments were i'm briefly interrupting to let you know that i'm marcia from yesyesmarsha.com and this is from a series of interviews that i did from 2009 to 2011 called marcia meets which were long-form interviews with stand-up comedians that eventually inspired the book off the mic the world's best stand-up comedians get serious about comedy that book's out now on bloomsbury publishing back to the interview so my montreal moments were sitting in a meeting with two agents from CAA who said, you know, we'd like to represent you in the States. And we look after uh, uh, Tom Cruise, Nicole Kidman, so we think we could do some stuff for you. What have you done? And I said, oh, I've done this, this. And I said, you know, I did radio in Australia, so I can work in radio. I know how the desk works. I know all that kind of stuff. And a guy called Ari looked at me and went, yeah, I don't want to put you in radio. I want to make you a movie star. <laughs> Bang! Wow! There's my Montreal moment. <laughs> uh, others included... Actually, I got off the plane at Montreal Airport. And I um, was kind of wandering through the airport. I had come from London, was a bit dazed. I heard my name and turned around and it was Simon Amstel. So, oh, hey, Simon. So we chatted and we walked through immigration together. And as we were walking through, this Scottish guy, because it was a, a queue that wound back on itself, this Scottish guy went, All right, Simon, are you doing uh, buzzcocks here in Montreal? And he stopped to chat. And I just thought, oh, it's that some bloke on holidays that's recognised Simon. And then Simon caught up and went, I'm so sorry about that. That was mid-year. Of course it was mid-year. <laughs> um, I bumped into John Cleese in an elevator. Wow. Had uh, you met him before? I hadn't. Uh, How was he, that? Well, it was interesting because he had pulled out of a show the night before because he'd been really ill and rushed to hospital. So I held the elevator door for him and he got in and he said, thank you. I said, that's quite all right. I went, How are you feeling? And he said, I'm okay, thank you. Uh, and the weirdest moment was, and I said, can I ask what, what it was? And he said, hey, it was prostatitis. And I went, oh, my God, I've got prostatitis, which I do have. And he looked at me and went, what? Because, you know, he'd just been sent to hospital for it, and I'm standing there in an elevator going, oh, no, I've got it too. <laughs> Not as severe as what you might have. So we discussed prostatitis for two minutes in an elevator. That's all we talked about. Well, he's probably more likely to remember you than someone who says, I love Monty Python. Well, exactly. That's what I'm thinking. I saw him a couple of days later across a, a crowded lobby and... I reckon he recognised me. I reckon there was a moment of, oh, you're the prostatitis chap. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so just before Melbourne, you were at Latitude. I was at Latitude and I missed your set because I was having to babysit for someone. But I heard just snitches of rumours yep. to do with giant pink poodles. Yep, that was me. Do you want to expand? You, you can check this all out on YouTube, I should point out, for anyone listening. Yeah, there was a, a late night thing called Guilty Pleasures, which was on after the comedy had finished in the comedy tent. And they had two massive pink poodles on the side of the stage, probably about 20 foot high. And every comedian had mentioned them. Everyone had gone, why, why have we got two massive gay poodles on the side of the stage? And then just left them. And I had a moment, as soon as I saw them, I went, oh, I want to crowd surf those poodles. And then I thought, I don't have the guts. I don't have the guts. And I was just about to go on. Russell Kane was on before me and I was sitting there going, 
I wish I was Ross Noble. If I was Ross Noble, I would crowd surf those poodles, but I just don't have the courage to do it. And then suddenly got on stage and the adrenaline took hold. And before you knew it, I mean, it started by dragging a kid from the audience up, getting him to sit on a poodle and then getting the poodle on stage and then getting another one on stage and another kid. And then I was threatening to race the kids on the poodles. I should probably point out the comedy tent at Latitude is enormous. It's like 2,000 people or something. And the reason I did it was because there was a massive screen out the front, a video screen, so that people across Latitude could look up and see what was going on in the comedy tent. So I thought it would be funny to put a kid on a poodle rocking back and forth on that screen singing How Much Is That Doggy in the Window while an audience went wild because I thought everyone else in Latitude would look up and go, what the hell is going on there? So that's how it started. And then it ended up with uh, a poodle race, uh, a crowd surfing poodle race. Um, And then I wanted to crowd surf the kids, but health and safety wouldn't let me. Right. So I crowd surfed myself up to the back of the room and back to the stage. And then I took rock star photos of the kids uh, and then sang a Queen medley. I think we sang We Will Rock You and We Are The Champions to make them feel like rock stars. That's going to stay with them for the rest of their lives. Maybe they'll become rock stars. I tell you what, the photos I took of them are pretty good too. <laughs> that, was, that was my proudest moment because I got their cameras from their parents and just kind of took it so that the kids were in the right of the shot and then the audience were just all the way out for the rest of the shot. I looked at it and went, oh, if I was a kid, I'd want a photo like that. <laughs> <That's amazing. laughs> um, so where do you live at the moment? Are you in the UK or are you in... Half and half. Okay. I spend the first half of the year in Australia where I do stand up, but I also host a TV show called Specs right. and Specs, which is a music quiz show like Buzzcocks. We call it Never Mention the Buzzcocks for legal reasons. And then the second half of the year, I, ba- I base myself in London and do the stand-up over here. I'll be doing the Edinburgh Festival in a week or so's time. I want to ask you about Specs and Specs. I want to ask you about Edinburgh as well. Before then, so you grew up in Sydney, like just yes. outside. Yes. You were a medical marvel. Medical marvel. That's what I heard when you were born. Oh, yeah. Okay. Well, yeah. Well, when I was born, I was born without a right foot. Mm. And the doctors at the time apparently said, let's amputate. We don't know what's down there. Let's amputate just below the knee. And this one kind of overseeing doctor came in and went, oh, I think there's an ankle joint there. Let's not just chop everything off. Let's just wait until he grows up and see if there's an ankle joint there, which there is. And because of that, I can walk a lot easier. I've got an artificial foot, mainly to make up the height difference, actually, because I can walk without it. Oh, really? But it just means that my back will get thrown out. Right. So I don't know about medical marvel, (laughs) but um, medical interesting person. Well, no, what's the word I'm looking for? Phenomenon. Phenomenon. I'll take that. Thank you. (laughs) So then growing up, you got into comedy when you were really little, right? Uh, Listening to comedy. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think I was about nine and I was on a flight. We had a family holiday to the States and my dad worked for Qantas, so we basically got free tickets, but you had to wait and make sure there were free seats on the plane. So because of that, we weren't seated together. So my brother and I sat up front and I remember, I think even before we had taken off, putting the headphones in, listening to the comedy channel and then standing up on the seat going, Mom, Dad, there's a man being funny on the radio. And then we go, just sit down and listen to him, Adam. And for the rest of the flight, I listened to the comedy channel. I didn't listen to anything else. And I was absolutely fascinated by it. I'm pretty sure it was Victor Borger was the first person I remember hearing, who was a Danish conductor, musician, classical pianist and comedian, who had a routine about um, how punctuation should have sounds so that when you're speaking, you can drop in punctuation. Like a a full stop would be and a question mark would be... And then did this whole sentence with inverted commas and making noises all the way through it. I was just entranced by it. And then I'm pretty sure... Bill Cosby was on that as well, on the in-flight channel. And then when we got home, my dad had some Bill Cosby albums. So he said, I oh, have a listen to this. And he had a Peter Sellers album. Um, Alan Sherman, who sang Hello Mother, Hello Father, Here I Am at Camp Granada, which was just an album of parodies, but to classical music. 
And that was it. I was kind of off and running after that. But in terms of career choice, your parents didn't approve. Wait, did you not want to be a vet at one point? I did. I think that was my first career choice was a vet. When I was in year 10, I did work experience at a vet surgery. And then two years later, I had to do work experience again. And that became as a journalist. Somehow I went from vet to journalist. Here's what I think happened. Vet was my original choice. Working with animals, loved animals, wanted to be a vet. And then... In year 11, I got into debating and gave a couple of like speeches to the class. And one was about, yeah, I guess it was like a journalistic argument. You're arguing a point. And then after that, I went, oh, I quite enjoyed that. Oh, I want to be a journalist. So I studied to be a journalist and studied radio at university. And then halfway through that, I realized it wasn't the journalism. It was the standing up in front of people that I quite enjoyed. And your first gig you did when you were at uni, you were young, right? You were 19. I was 19, yeah, yeah. At the Sydney Comedy Store. Yes, it was. How did it go? Uh... I'd say, okay, <laughs> in that I had a whole bunch of friends there. It was my 19th birthday, uh, and I'd said to my friends, let's all go to the comedy store, and I'm going to do a spot, and they all got quite excited by that. And my mum said, no, you're not, because you're not funny. Uh, was exactly her words, you're not funny. But I still pressed on regardless. <laughs> Went to the comedy store, all my mates turned up. If I was watching myself now, I'd go, oh, my God, that's awful. There were some old jokes in there. There was some rambling there was talk about sex, which was ridiculous because I was still a virgin at 19. Why was I talking about sex? In fact, I'm pretty sure the biggest laugh came when the compere walked back on stage and just went, isn't it funny that those that talk about it the most do it the least? Ray, Big round of applause. And I'm pretty sure as I left that night, I heard the compere say to the venue owner, well, he was all right, but I'd like to see him do it when he doesn't have friends in the audience. And did you? I did six months later because mum would only let me do stand-up when it was uni holidays. <laughs> You're living under our house, it's our rules. So six months later, it was holidays. Three months later, we went to the States again and I went to the Las Vegas Comedy Store and saw Jim Carrey perform live. Whoa. Yeah, yeah, when he was still doing stand-up before he was doing movies or TV. Wow. And he was excellent. And he wasn't the headliner, though. He was excellent, but he wasn't actually the best on the bill. That was a guy called Angel Salazar, who I've never heard of since. So, yeah, six months later, I went back. I tried it again. Died. I got heckled after the first joke. Oh, man. And I put the guy down and got a round of applause, and then he just turned on me, and I lost confidence in myself. And then a week later, I went back again, and it was average. And I was starting to think, oh, this isn't good. I'm sure I can do this. I know I can. And then I went to another gig a friend of mine was doing, and the headliner hadn't turned up, and he said, do you want to come and do five minutes? So I got up and did five, and the first line got a round of applause, and then every joke worked, and I went, okay, I can do it. I just need to do it more often. You also worked on the midday show? Yes, I did. This, like, daytime variety uh, That was show. after I finished. So I was still okay. studying and doing stand-up, and then I had to plead my case to my mum and go, no, I, I'm going to stick with this, and I'm, I'm going to do it even if it's not holidays. And then eventually she went, all right, because the open mic night was every Wednesday. So every Wednesday I'd go out and do an open mic spot and kept doing it and doing it. And then after only about four months before I started getting professional bookings, like being paid to do 15-minute spots. And I think after that, my parents kind of went, oh, maybe he's all right at it. <laughs> so then I finished uni, but then I worked as a stagehand at a TV station. And one of the shows was this midday variety show. Was it like the equivalent of, I don't know, This Morning or Des and Mel or something? Uh, yeah, it was pretty huge. It was one of the big shows to watch especially for students, for students and, and mums. <laughs> but it was just a way in to television. So, you know, I'd be there at seven in the morning, taking down the set from the night before, building new sets, running behind the cameraman, making sure he didn't trip over the camera cables, and then going out at night and doing stand-up. And, and then at one point I started writing for a radio station and uh, I'd work at the TV station from like 3 p.m. till midnight 
and then I'd go home, have a couple of hours sleep, get to the radio station for four, and then I'd write for the breakfast show until about nine, and then go home, have a couple of hours sleep, and then go back to the TV station. I only did that for about a week before I just went, okay, I've got to quit something. So the TV went? The TV went, yeah. And you stuck with the radio station, and then you were working, what, on the breakfast show? I was writing comedy for the breakfast show, whilst also doing stand-up on the weekends. Then they asked me if I'd go to Adelaide and kind of be the on-air breakfast show host there. That's the way you worked your way up in the radio industry in Australia. You went to the big city, you worked as a writer, and then they went, right, we're going to send you to the, not the country, but a smaller city to then become a host. And then my plan was, I went there all cocky and full of piss and vinegar and went, right, I'm going to go to Adelaide, six months' time, I'm going to be the king of Adelaide, and then I'll come back to Sydney. And then I kind of realised that radio is about a little bit more than that. But then along the way, I I just rediscovered the love of stand-up again. In fact, there was a moment where I was being asked to go to a smaller city where they said, well, we want you to go to Newcastle and do the breakfast show now. And uh, about a month before that, I'd met Billy Connolly. The radio station was promoting a Billy Connolly gig and I kind of went backstage and got to take some winners to meet him. And his manager went, just don't tell people they're winners because he feels like a piece of meat. So all he knew were there were half a dozen people there. And they all clammed up. They all went really quiet and nervous. He looked at me and said, uh, so what do you do? And I said, oh, I work at the radio station that promoted your shows. And he went, oh, thank you. And he was, like, he was really effusive about that. And I said, I'm actually a stand-up. And as soon as I said that, he just dropped everything and went, oh, wow, never stop doing it. You'll love it. It's the best job in the world. And we just started talking about stand-up. And I said, you know, watching you on stage, I learned. And he went, oh, no, that was it. The first thing he said was, did you like my show? He was genuine, you know, you're a stand-up. Oh, did you like what I was doing? And then he just, it was really chatty and got a photo taken with me and put his arm around me and went, oh, the amount of time you'll spend waiting for the people's flashes to come on. And then as he walked off down the hallway, he was going, just do it. Do you love it? Just do it. And it was just a month later, I was asked to go to Newcastle. And I kind of said to the people, oh, look, I like doing stand-up here. There's a good stand-up scene in Adelaide. And the boss said, you're going to have to choose between stand-up and radio. And then this little voice went, just do it. And I went, you know what? It's time to go back to stand-up again. So you went to stand-up full-time. And then you moved to the UK. Was that not long after that? It was a wee while after that. Bizarrely enough, around the same time, I met a woman called um, Carolyn Lee, or Flea as she's better known. I used to work with her in radio and she had moved. She had worked at the Edinburgh Festival at the Gilda Balloon. She was just about to move to Ireland because she met an Irish comedian called Eddie Bannon and they ended up getting married. And she said, if you come over, do the festival, and I'll get you some gigs in Ireland. And Boothby Graffo had been at the Adelaide Comedy Festival, and late one night had said to me, you should do Edinburgh. Even if you die on your ass every night for a month, you'll still be a better comedian at the end of it. (laughs) Don't know why he sounded like Darth Vader. Um, (laughs) So I did the Edinburgh Festival and just was instantly addicted. Went back to Australia and was offered my old job back at twice the wage that I was on. And uh, the guy that offered me the job was actually really good about it. He looked at me and he said, look... From a network point of view, you should take this job. I've worked in the network. People like what you do. Take this job. It'll be good for your career. As a friend, though, you've seen Everest now and you want to climb it. Yeah, you're right. You're kind of right. I do. So I took a punt. I didn't go back to radio and I stuck with stand-up after that and then would come back to Edinburgh and do maybe a couple of weeks in Ireland and then that built up to a couple of months in Ireland and then that built up to actually living in Dublin for about two or three years thanks to Flea and getting gigs over there. And then gradually, I was spending more and more time in the UK, so then I made the decision to move to London. So when was that? When did you move to Ireland? Ireland was about 99. Right. London was about 2002. So just before then, 2001, you got nominated for the Perrier. 
yes. Edinburgh with uh, Go You Big Red Fire Engine, <laughs> yeah. which itself is a phenomenon. Do you know what? The reason I called the show that was the year before, two things had happened. The year before... I was doing a show called Goody Two Shoes and I was getting Perrier judges in to see the show. And you know, you find out ahead of time all you've got some judges in. And if you're doing well, you get more judges in. So I found out that I was having all the judges coming in and I was getting quite stressed about it. And, um, you know, you go out on stage and go, oh, I don't want to ruin this. There's a judge. Anyone could be, what's your name, sir? And in your head you're going, he might be a judge. Don't ruin this. Don't ruin this. And I saw a friend of mine on the street, an Australian comedian called Scott Brennan, and he said, oh, you must be having a ball. You're sold out. You're getting great reviews. And I kind of thought, yeah, I should be having a ball. This is ridiculous that I'm stressing about judges. And then in the meantime, I had done a show where a guy got up on stage and I asked him to yell his name to the audience and they'd yell it back, a bit like James Brown. And he yelled, he was a fireman, so instead of yelling his name for no reason, he yelled the phrase, go you big red fire engine. And the audience yelled it back and it became this weird thing. And I'd said to him, I'm going to name a show after you one day. And then I didn't because I thought, well, that's stupid. What a stupid name for a show. No one's going to take me seriously. Went to Edinburgh, took it too seriously, got stressed out. And then went, do you know what? If I call my show Go You Bigger at Fire Engine next year, there's no way I can take it too seriously. There's no way I can go, oh my God, what if I ruin this in front of a judge tonight when the show is actually called Go You Big Red Fire Engine? So more than anything else, it was a way of stopping me worrying too much about all the malarkey that goes on in Edinburgh. And then ironically, as soon as you stop worrying about it, you get nominated. But that now, as a phrase, has been shouted at you from all over the world. Yeah, it's one of those things that I then did a, another show in 2004 called Go You Big Red Fire Engine 2, Judgment Day, just because I thought that would be silly as well. And I haven't really done much with it since, but it keeps being... Even I was in uh, Canterbury last night and walked on stage and a woman yelled, Go You Big Red Fire Engine. So it still happens to be yelled at me every now and again. And it got shouted out in Parliament? Australian Parliament. Natasha Stott Despoja, who at that point was the leader of the Australian Democrats Party, finished a speech by yelling, go you big red fire engine, was printed in the Detroit Free Press newspaper. In what context? In the context, I think there was an article about Detroit embracing its bicentennial celebrations and how they should really get behind it. And uh, finished with, the journalist had been to my show in Edinburgh and finished with, you know, to quote from Adam Hills, an Australian comedian I saw in Edinburgh, we should all yell, go you big red fire engine. So I'm sure there's more life to it. Do you know, in fact, I went to go and see that show, the second one, and it was an evening when I was coming in to do a show on XFM later on. And we had things at the top of the hour where it's a donut, so you have loads of jingles and 20 seconds to speak. Right. And I went on immediately that night and said, you know, it's XFM, I'm Marsha coming up, we've got new Kaiser Chiefs, blah, blah, go you big red fire engine. <laughs> I don't know what else to do with it, but I think the next step might be a documentary. I think there's a feature-length documentary in which I travel the world finding people that have yelled, go, you big red fire engine. Did you ever hear from the original guy again? I never did. Out of all the things that happened with it, I never heard from the original guy, which in a way I kind of like. I like the fact that it's taken on its own life and I don't know who he is. Do you think he knows? Oh, he'd have to. He'd have to. I mean, he was at my show and yelled, go, you big red fire engine. I think the thing is, though, he lied. He wasn't actually a fireman. He was just kind of making it up, and maybe he feels a bit guilty about that. Because he'll get found out and there'll be a press article. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But I think that might be it, actually. But I know that he wasn't a fireman. But it was just such a lovely moment that I went, we've got to run with this. So I hope he does know. I'd like to think he's sitting there at home just quietly watching it go around the world. Thinking, I started that. Yeah, again, maybe you've inspired him to do bigger things. Maybe he's become a fireman. <laughs> yeah. Maybe he's actually become a fireman because of it. That would be amazing. So that got nominated for the Perrier. Yep. You then got nominated the next two years yes. for the Perrier, the following two. Yeah. How important is that kind of stuff to you? Because we've had people on this podcast, people who've won it and people who've been nominated. For some people, you can tell it's really a big deal. And for other people, you can tell they're like, eh. Um, it was a weird one because... 
The first time I went to Edinburgh, I didn't know what the Perrier Award was. I'd never heard of it. I think Tommy Tiernan won it that year. I think. It might have even been League of Gentlemen. I'm not sure. It was 97. So I had no idea what it was. And I remember someone saying to me, oh, you had a Perrier judge in tonight because you're eligible for Best Newcomer. And I had a shocking night. Like, I really didn't have a great show that night. And I never really gave it that much thought. But then I did start thinking, okay, well, there's this award and this is the thing that everyone aims at. And it, it did start entering my mind of, okay, well, I've got to do the best show I possibly can every year to try and be eligible for that award. But then I know in 99 I had a lot of judges in and then in 2000 I had a lot of judges. And then I started, like I said, stressing about it and thinking too much about it. And that's when I decided I'm actively going to almost try not to win it. Go Your Big Red Fire Engine was a little bit of a rebellion against getting caught up. And I don't think I was openly caught up. I wasn't one of those people that was sprouting publicly. I want to win this award. But then the weird thing is, so I decided to do a show that would probably not get me nominated and take my focus off it. And then, of course, I was nominated, which was all fun. And that year it was uh, Daniel Kitson, Dan Antopolsky, possibly Jason Byrne and Garth Marenghi. And Garth Marenghi ended up winning. And that was great. And so, and I, f- I kind of felt a bit liberated after that. And I thought, oh, good. Well, that's done. I can talk about other stuff. now. And then the next year I talked about my artificial foot because my thinking was, well, now I won't be nominated because I've already been nominated. And if I am, it won't be, oh, well, he was only nominated because of his foot because clearly I wasn't the previous year. So I felt really liberated and talked about my foot. And then all of a sudden I was nominated again. And I think Daniel Kitson won it that year. And then the third year I was nominated was really annoying because it was like, oh, God, we have to go through. Because it's, it's actually, once you're nominated, it's actually quite stressful because then you go out on stage the next night knowing that all 10 judges are sitting there watching you. And you, so what's, what's your name, sir? What do you, what do, you do for a living? <laughs> and the back of your head's going, don't ruin it, there are 10 judges here. And then people were kind of saying to me on the street, well, this is your third and you're nominated. You've got to win it. You're a shoo-in. And um, Andy Smart was going, oh, I've got my money on you this year because he does a betting list and you're best odds. And, and then Dimitri Martin won. And fair play, Dimitri Martin's amazing. But that night I did an interview. It was, it was a radio show. I can't remember what it was, but it was like one in the morning after the nominations, after the winner was announced. Then we've got Adam Hills on the line. Adam Hills was in the lead to win the Perrier Award, but was pipped at the post by Dimitri Martin. Adam, what went wrong? <laughs> I was like, what? It's not like I was, you know what I mean? It's not like I gave up or I wasn't fit enough. I was just doing my show the best I could every night. And um, I remember when Dimitri's name was read out, Nika Burns, who's the director of the Perrier Awards, came over and put her arms around me and talked to me for about 15 minutes. But the room was so noisy, I have no idea what she's <laughs> It, it could have been the most heartfelt, beautiful thing ever. I have absolutely no idea what she said. And then the next year, I went up to Edinburgh again in 2004, and she basically said to me, look, we think you're ineligible. You've been nominated three times. Technically, you could sell out a big enough room to make you ineligible, but we feel bad because of what happened. So it's up to you if you want to be considered in the running for it this year, which was a lovely thing to do. And I kind of had a good, long, hard think about it for a couple of days and then went, no. I'm done. Is that it now? Are you no longer eligible? I'm now ineligible for it, right. yeah. The idea is if you've got your own TV show or if you can play a room that's bigger than 600 seats, which I've done for the past three years. Dave Gorman, I talked to Dave Gorman about this, and he's got a great theory. There are three ways of being ineligible to win the Perio. One is you've already won it. Two is you're playing 600-seat venues. Or three, you have your own TV show. The last two are what you want anyway. So why not just aim at those? So... Being ineligible means you're actually doing quite well, which is the whole point of doing comedy, is to be doing quite well. So, so I'm, I'm glad it's behind me. And do you know what, even, well, I'll say this, um, there was a moment when Brendan Burns, the year he won it, 
that I knew he was going to win it because he took me aside and said, Hilsey, I need to talk to you. They've offered me an extra show. They want me to do an extra show on the final Saturday of The Fringe. And I went, that's great. You should always do extra shows. And he went, yeah, but it's the same time that the awards winner is announced. He said, now, I'm not nominated yet, but what if I am? Would that then work against me? Would I not win it because I'm doing a show? And without me saying a word, he went, the hell am I talking about? I'm not up here to win an award. I'm up here to do a bloody show. I'll do it. And as soon as he said that, I thought, oh, I reckon you're going to win the award now because now you've got the right attitude. And then he did. Then he did. He won it that year because he had that attitude of, I'm not up here to win an award. I'm up here to do a show. So the TV show you mentioned, you started doing this in 2005. Yes. Specs and Specs. Mm -hmm. And uh, this is now a huge deal in Mm. Australia. 1.6 million viewers. Yeah, yeah. That's nuts. Well, it was this little show that um, I was in London and I got a phone call saying, do you want to come back and host this music quiz show? It's comedy based, so you can be as funny as you want, but it's going to celebrate Australian music. And it's made by these people who've made some great documentaries about Australian music. And we'll film it in six-month blocks so that you can go back to London. And I thought, well, that's ideal. Do that for a couple of years. Do you know what? I had the same attitude as when I went to Adelaide Radio. I'll do that for a couple of years and then I'll come back here and host my own show. So I went back in the first week. We started with like 600,000 viewers and then the next week it dropped. And then week two, actually, we had Ross Noble on the show. And then the viewing figures went up a little bit the following week. And then ever so slightly, they just crept up and crept up and crept up and then... We had a bet in the first year, like all the people that worked on the show, that we might hit a million. And then we did, I think, before the end of that year, and we were quite excited about that. And then it's just grown ever since then, to the point where people plan their whole Wednesday night. Their whole Wednesday nights, I was going to say Wednesday night viewing, but their Wednesday nights are planned around watching our show now, which is amazing. You know, there's people that I've heard of kids that their parents say, what kind of birthday party do you want? They say, oh, we want a Spicks and Specs party. (laughs) So their parents have to run a music quiz with all of their friends. There are board games around the show in Australia. There's an interactive DVD game. There are DVDs released. It's kind of ridiculous. So are you a massive star then? I guess so. I mean, like, are you a celeb, you know, and all the stuff that comes with that? Yes. Well, put it this way. I got engaged last year and immediately two magazines called up wanting to have exclusive photos of the wedding. Your missus is in the public eye as well, though, isn't she? Yes, she she is. She's a singer and she's doing Edinburgh this month as well. So, I mean, we said no to the magazines because we're not idiots. But do you get papped? Uh, I don't think I've been technically papped as yet. Um, What are the Australian tabloids like? Oh, they're not as bad as here. They're definitely not as bad as here. But if there's an opening or there's an event or something and you turn up and there's an official photographer, I might get photographed there. Maybe that's the a sign of how famous I am in Australia. I'm only photographed officially. <laughs> but no long lenses <laughs> No long lenses window. as yet, as right. far as I know. And how has it affected your audiences when you do stand up? Have you noticed a change in them? Because I know sometimes, you know, if people go on TV a lot and then people who come along before, they might be people who are really into stand up, whereas now yeah. there might be people who go, he's a bit famous, I'll come along. There were actually two stages of that change for my audience because the first one was I realised my audience became a bit better dressed <laughs> I had to stop wearing jeans and a t-shirt on stage because I'd look out and go oh hang on hang on there are people who watch me on telly and this is now their big night out uh, and they're you know people in their 40s and 50s dressed up in a nice collared shirt and a suit and I look like I'm disrespecting them wearing a t-shirt and jeans so immediately I started wearing a collared shirt and it definitely helped my audiences they definitely picked up and I was playing maybe four or five hundred seaters around Australia But then, the end of last year, the ABC, which is the network I'm on, aired a stand-up special that I did. And it was actually just highlights of my DVD. But suddenly, all the people that watched me and thought I was a slightly amusing game show host suddenly went, oh, hang on, he does stand-up. Oh, he's quite good at it. (laughs) So then this year, 
my audiences really took off. So I was kind of playing 1,500, 2,000 seat venues this year. Wow. How is that doing a show? Oh, it's weird at first. It's really weird to go from three, 400 people and then suddenly you walk out to massive rock venues. Like I was playing the same venues that Joe Cocker was playing. <laughs> and you walk out and go, what? There are 2,000 people here and I've sold out four nights. This is ridiculous. And at first it's really confronting to be on stage in front of that many people going, what are you looking at? Why are you looking at me? And then eventually you get used to it and go, okay, well, it's not about whether or not I think I deserve this. It's about you going out and giving the best show you possibly can. But it does change your comedy slightly, I think. Well, you do a lot of stuff with the audience. Yes. You know, usually, yeah. and a lot of stuff, as you said, with the latitude example, off the cuff. Yeah. And so does that make a big difference? It still works, actually, on a good night. I mean, you can get more people involved in it. There was one night in Melbourne where a couple turned up late so I ran up and found them and said, why are you late? And he said, well, we walked past Federation Square in the city and there was a board where you could send in a text and your text would appear on that board. So I sent in a text. I said, what'd you send? And he said, well, I, I sent in a text saying, I really love Kaz, who was his girlfriend. And I went, oh, that's absolutely lovely. So then I went, oh, how about you send in a text now from us? We'll tell you something and you can text it because you've still got the number in your phone. And he went, yeah, right. So I said to the audience, what are we going to send? And someone said, show us your tits. And I said, please, let's all grow up a little bit. What are we going to send? And someone else said, how about go and see Adam Hills? I went, oh, that's, I like that. And then someone else went, no, no, go and see Adam Hills. He'll show you his tits. Excellent. Let's do that. And he started to type it and someone else in the audience yelled, why don't we all do it? So I got 900 people to turn their phones on and send a text to a message board in the centre of Melbourne that said, go see Adam Hills, he'll show you his tits. And did anyone see the result? Uh, I think so, because at the end of the show, I said, look, we will never know if that worked. But if you ever hear that it has worked, please send me an email at my website or post a note or something like that. And this girl up the back yelled, Adam, I just got a text from a friend of mine saying, are you at Adam Hills' show? Apparently he'll show you his tits. <laughs> so, you know, playing a bigger audience, you learn how to do your show to that many people, but you also learn how to ad-lib to that many people. You, I mean, you're still doing loads of stand-up. You're still doing six months a year of stand-up yes, and yeah. shows and things. Are people surprised by that? Do they kind of expect you to just go off and be a movie star? <laughs> <laughs> movie star. Um, probably. I think people in Australia are surprised that I spend so much time over here and that I've got a following over here. And then people over here are surprised that I have a TV show back home and I have this weird double life. So I guess I could. I mean, I could quite easily take the second half of the year off and go and live in the Bahamas and have someone fan me. But I mean, even doing stuff like acting, you've done bits of acting. You did a show at the festival a couple of years ago. Yeah, we did uh, Break and Morant at the Edinburgh Festival a few years ago. And uh, last year I filmed a little part in a film um, that was made up there called Peacock Season, which is about a comedian at the Edinburgh Festival. And it's actually great. I'm going tonight to do the DVD commentary for it. It's a tiny budget film. No one got paid, but because we knew the people making it, they basically said, we want comedians to play against type. So I've got a spot in it. Reese Shearsmith pops up. James Wren is the main character. Nina Conti, Richard Herring, Reese Darby, Sammy J, Glenn Wall, all of these comedians are doing little bits in this film, which I'd love to do more of. So what's your character then? My character was described as being Brendan Hill's a cross between Brendan Burns and me, basically. Just this really jaded, drunk, angry comedian who uh, I can't even repeat most of the lines that I came out with. But um, just a jaded old bitter comedian. But does that kind of stuff appeal to you? Do you want to do more acting? I love doing stuff like that. I mean, it's not... I've worked with actors and I've seen actors and they're amazing and that's clearly what they're meant to do. And I know that what I'm meant to do is stand-up. There's something about the actor mentality that I just don't have. And also, you know, I've worked on the road with musicians as well. And I know I'm not a rock star. 
I'm a comedian. There's something about our personalities that make us all slightly different. I think actors quite enjoy being someone else. Comedians quite enjoy being themselves. And rock stars, I'm not quite sure the difference with rock stars. I think rock stars just enjoy having girls scream at them. <laughs> well, you have had a top 10 pop hit in Australia. Oh, it wasn't quite top 10. It was top 50, I think. Yeah, it was a thing I did. I discovered that you could sing the words of the Australian National Anthem to the tune of an Australian rock song called Working Class Man by a guy called Jimmy Barnes. And uh, I started doing it on stage and then I got a whole bunch of comedians together and tried to release it as a charity single. And it really didn't go anywhere. But it was fun to do. I might one day re-release it with the guy who sings the original. That would be my dream. Uh, and I might aim at that for next year. That might be... There you go. I've said it now. That's my goal for next year. And also you've done other stuff. You did the... Um Commentary. What's the what's the word? Hosted I'm the for? opening and closing ceremonies of the Paralympic Games. Is yes, that where you're heading? <laughs> that's exactly. That's exactly where I'm heading. Thank you. Yeah, yeah that, in Beijing last year. Yeah, that was one of those things. Of uh, last year, I decided not to do a solo stand-up show. I did a few nights in Edinburgh, but not a solo run, purely because I was getting a bit worn out from doing stand-up and just constantly churning out a new show every year. But partly because I thought I just need to experience a few different things so that I've got something different to talk about. And I thought, well, if I don't do stand-up, I'll be offered something. Something will come up. And then I was asked to go to Beijing for the Paralympics and went, okay, that's probably the something. And it was amazing. It was just, I didn't see any of China. I didn't do any touristy stuff. All I did was just go and watch events every day and got into it. And I did a gig for the athletes and uh, I got to know the athletes and they'd see me cheering in the stands, which was lovely and, and wave. And, and then when I got back, I flew back to London and I was sitting on the plane and went, oh, I've got to write down what I just saw because there are some funny stories in there. And started writing and went, I think I've got a stand-up bit here. And the next night I was on stage at Headliners in Chiswick and just went, I've got to tell you people what I saw last night and went... And ended up with like a five-minute routine, which has now become a 15-minute routine at the end of my show about the Paralympics. And this is your show that you're doing in Edinburgh this year? Yes. Which is called Inflatable? Yes, it is. Yeah, yeah. Is it kind of about anything? Very vaguely, it's about the idea of inflating everyone that you come into contact with. That's very vaguely what it's about. And I came up with the name Inflatable at the Edinburgh Festival two years ago. The last night of the festival, I sat there going, what's the next show going to be called? Went, inflatable. Yeah, I like the idea of inflating people and see where that ends up. And then that just became a show that's... It's also about getting older and what lessons I'd like to teach my kids when I eventually have kids, one of which is the point of life is to inflate as many people as you can. So that's where it all kind of came about from. And so that's going to be on at... The Assembly Rooms Music Hall at 8.50 every night. And the details for that and for everything else you're doing are on your website. Can I plug one more thing? Sure. Have I got time? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hannah Gadsby is an Australian oh, comedian. Yeah. So you've started producing other people's shows. I produced three shows in Melbourne this year. Uh, Hannah Gadsby, Adam Vincent and Wilson Dixon. And I'm quite happy to boast about other people's achievements. Hannah was nominated for Best Newcomer and Wilson was nominated for the Barry Award for Best Show in Melbourne. He's also going to be in Edinburgh, but he doesn't need me. He's doing quite well in Edinburgh. He's been on the BBC with a series. He's going to be fine. But Hannah, I'm co-producing in Edinburgh. But yeah, Hannah Gadsby's fantastic. She's from Tasmania. She's incredibly dry. And the majority of the show is about her mother and her mother's fear of doctors combined with Hannah's capacity to be accident prone. So where's her show on? Her show's also Assembly Rooms, but it's 7.20 every night. And is the information for their shows up on your website? Uh, I think it is. It will be by the time this goes to air. <laughs> AdamHills.com? Yes. All right, cool. Thanks so much for coming Oh, in. pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. That was really enjoyable. 
Thanks so much for listening. If you like that, you'll probably love the book that I put together with Deborah Francis White called Off the Mic, The World's Best Stand-Up Comedians Get Serious About Comedy. So asking them things like, what's your writing process? How do you find your voice? What do you think about touring? How do you deal with hecklers? We interviewed 42 stand-ups, including Eddie Izzard, Sarah Millican, Phil Jupiter, Stuart Lee, Mark Maron. It's out now on Bloomsbury Publishing. If you want to find out more, go to Yes Yes marsha.com forward slash off the mic.